Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Gregory May. He is a historian who writes about the early American Republic. He is a graduate of the College of William and Mary and Harvard Law School, where he was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. After working as a Supreme Court law clerk, Greg practiced law in Washington, D.C. and New York for 30 years. He lives in Virginia. His new book is titled, A Madman's Will, John Randolph, 400 Slaves, and the Mirage of Freedom. Few legal cases in American history are as riveting as the controversy surrounding the will of Virginia Senator John Randolph, which almost inexplicably freed all 383 of his slaves in one of the largest and most publicized manumissions in American history. I'm joined by 15 of my Harvard classmates. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Richard Rothstein, class of 63. Is that all? <laughs> Come on, so, tell us some more. <laughs> I, as of uh, as of this week, I am for the first time semi-retired. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> right. Bill. Bill Collins, class of 63, living in Aiken, South Carolina, where I came 30 years ago to work, but I'm retired from work now. And... Uh, doing volunteer stuff and going to these sessions. Okay, Alden. Uh, grew up in New England, uh, now live just south of San Francisco. My wife and I have a company which uh, consults with nonprofits and I have not yet managed to retire. <laughs> hey, Peter, Peter. <clears throat> Hi, uh, Pete DeLisvoy, I'm, I'm an editor and writer, uh, live up in New Hampshire. I guess Portsmouth was the place where George Washington's slave uh, maidservant escaped when they were on a trip to Ohio. Am I right? And, and, you're thinking, and, of, thinking of Oni Judd? Uh, yeah. 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 And, and she managed to live in Portsmouth for the rest of her life, did, did she not? Yes. Wow, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Ronnie. And I'm... I'm, I'm Hi, uh, I'm just going to say I'm just going to say I'm 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 from Evanston. I just wanted to put in one plug for where I'm from, Evanston, Illinois, which is a town that's actually trying to do something in the way of reparations. Much of the news lately in 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 terms of their housing policies, Evanston, Illinois, oh, where okay. I'm from. Okay, Ron, uh, Ron Blau, past sixty three, been in TV and video. All my life, um, freelancers don't retire, and I just got a little gig this week. And I'm also kind of active in climate stuff. Okay. John. Well, hi. John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Class of 63 from Benton Harbor, Michigan. And um, I've been editing and writing for most of my life. Hey, Nick. Nick Bancroft, uh, Medfield, Mass., Class of 63, Harvard Business School, Peace Corps, India, a couple of years, back to Boston, estates, investments, that sort of thing. And having attended the reunion, very happy to see that these, I can attest that at least some of these guys 
are real, not just pictures <laughs> on a Zoom screen. Jerry. Right. <laughs> okay. Good morning, Jerry Secundi, Pasadena, California, environmental lawyer, uh, Peace Corps in Peru, uh, semi-retired, and my big news is that for Father's Day, my family gave me a saltwater fish tank, which I think is designed to keep me out of their hair, so I'm, I'm <laughs> Hey, uh, Ham. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining seeing you, Jerry, in the uh, fish tank. Yeah. <laughs> Swimming with the fish. Uh, Okay, uh, I and I really like your your line, Ron, about freelancers don't retire. And, and I think for a lot of us, the line between retiring and not retiring is uh, not that different because of all the things that we do otherwise. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm an ongoing clinical psychologist, and and I uh, like my work most of the time. <laughs> hey, Jeff. Oh, hi, uh, Jeff Fox. It's me, right? Okay. Uh, I, <laughs> originally from Chicago, uh, spent years working as a, a teaching and, and re researching and publishing as a sociologist, mostly focusing on Latin America. I'm now uh, I'm now writing fiction, and at at this I live in Spain, but at this moment I'm in Manhattan. Okay, and. Uh, hi, I'm uh, at class of 63, retired or semi-retired psychotherapist specializing in trauma and post-traumatic stress, uh, which we probably all know something about. I am currently pretty much dividing my time between the West Coast and the East Coast, but I did spend five years in Evanston and um, agree that it's a very interesting and progressive in many ways place. Okay, George. George Jones, class of 63, currently living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And later this afternoon, I'm going to take my motorcycle in for the 127,000 mile service. Wow. Keep going alive. Wow. Ezra. Uh, Ezra Griffith, I'm an academic psychiatrist. I retired. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dorothy. Hi, Dorothy Stoneman. Class of 63, live in Belmont, Massachusetts. I loved meeting so many of you at our recent reunion. That was really nice. Uh, I've spent a lot of my life in New York City and and uh, also created and ran Youth Build for low-income young people to build affordable housing in their neighborhoods over a 40-year period. And I'm still working with young people uh, and still as a kind of mentor for young social entrepreneurs who grew up in poverty, and I'm playing with the idea of Elders United for a Fair Economy. Aha. Uh -huh. All right. Good idea. Good idea. <laughs> Kathy, yeah. Kathy Nelson. Hi, I'm in Falls Church, have been in Washington, D.C. area since 79, a retired housing economist. Fantastic. Um, really loved the reunion and seeing so many of you there. Um, my priority right now for the next few months is trying to get both houses of uh, House and Senate in Virginia um, Democratic so to hopefully stop Youngkin on many fronts. Okay. Uh, David Othmer. David Othmer, also class of 63, grew up in South America and Central America, went to uh, Harvard, as I said, and uh, have spent most of my life in public broadcasting, 
at WMET in New York and in Philadelphia at WHYY, where Maureen and I now live. Okay. And Allison, good to see you. Are you in Italy? Yes, yeah. Um, Allison Wardle, um, uh, class of 63, uh, more commonly known as Cindy. Um, I have lived here in, I've lived in Italy since 1970. Uh, I live in Radin and participate, you know, from a distance uh, and, and like, and enjoy seeing all of the, these people from the past. <laughs> okay, great. That's it. Yeah. And Gregory May, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us and tell us about your life and the book. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is this this is really a treat. Uh, it's always fun to talk to smaller groups where it's more of a conversation than a talk. Um, well, I was uh, at the law school at Harvard in 78, as I was saying to some of you earlier. Um, then I clerked for federal judges for a couple of years, uh, ending with Justice Powell in the Supreme Court, went into private practice in Washington uh, and in New York. And for many years, I was part of each week in both cities practicing corporate tax law, uh, mostly mergers and acquisitions, corporate finance and that sort of thing. So when I retired early, about 10 years ago, uh, it was with the purpose of doing something totally different. I had always had a tremendous interest in uh, research and writing American history. And so that's what I've been doing. This book is my second. My first was a political biography of Albert Gallatin, who was Secretary of the Treasury for Jefferson and Madison. So it was really a look at... Um, a, a tremendously understudied area, which is public finance in the early republic. Um, and and it's sort of an argument that uh, the Hamiltonian system, which the mythology uh, believes was created in the 1790s and has been with us ever since, was actually exploded by the Jeffersonians and didn't really come back until the last half of the 19th century. So this book, uh, the current book, A Madman's Will, was a total departure for me, a completely different kind of book. I first stumbled on uh, the, the subject, John Randolph's manumission of such a large group of enslaved people, when I was doing um, a thesis about his opposition to the War of 1812 in college. And I thought it was curious that no one had ever really studied the manumission because it was so unusual and so dramatic. Um, then about 15 years ago, um, a, a history professor named Melvin Ely wrote a book called Israel on the Appomattox, which was about the freed community that grew up near... Um, Peters, west of Petersburg, a small town of Farmville, Virginia, after John Randolph's brother, Richard, freed about 110 of his enslaved people when he died at a very young age, prematurely in um, the late 1790s. And that book was very well received. It won the Bancroft Prize. It got lots of attention. 
And I remember thinking at that time that if people thought that story was interesting, I thought this story was even more dramatic and compelling in lots of ways, also more tragic. Um, so after I had done the Gallatin book and was thinking about what I wanted to do next, it really took scarcely more <clears throat> than a heartbeat for me to decide that this was what I wanted to attack as, as the next project. Um, so <clears throat> I spent about uh, three and a half years, maybe a little longer doing the research, which involved spending a lot of time in um, Ohio, trying to find evidence of what happened to the freedmen after they were turned away from Mercer County what the, the, the destination to which they originally went um, with more or less success, but that took an awful lot of time. And then uh, the, the, the other big chunk of primary research was in uh, 24 years of court records, 12 years of litigation in Virginia over John Randolph's wills, and another 12 years of litigation in Ohio in the early 20th century, when the survivors and the descendants of the Randolph Freedmen tried to recover the land in Mercer County that, that they had originally tried to settle. So those two enormous bodies of, uh, of material provided uh, a, a real starting point for the research the kind of starting point that's often not available for stories about enslaved people. Um, and and the, the outlines of the story, for those of you who haven't looked at the book already or, or seen some description of it, um, could be summarized very briefly by saying John Randolph or Roanoke, as he was commonly called, was one of the most famous and flamboyant politicians in the early American Republic. He entered Congress as a very young man the year before Jefferson became president. He died in Andrew Jackson's second administration and scarcely a newspaper throughout that long life, uh, long span of 30 some years, uh, failed to mention the guy because he was just so outrageous uh, and so good at courting public attention. He became famous um, after the, well, most famous after the Missouri Compromise when uh, Southern Jeffersonians began to realize that the extensions of federal power, which they had been supporting after the War of 1812, could actually provide the, the muscle and sinew for invading slaveholder interest. Randolph had been preaching that <laughs> since uh, about the time of the War of 1812 and had steadfastly resisted the extensions of federal power that the rest of the Jeffersonian Republicans had supported. So suddenly he became uh, their their icon, never, never their leader as he had been in the Jeffersonian years because he was just too erratic. But um, he, he became an icon for Southern resistance to federal power. And that made his uh, uh, manumission of 
um, all of his slaves all the more startling to his contemporaries. Although some of his close friends in Virginia knew <clears throat> that he had long intended to do that, um, e even they were surprised because in his later years, he had become very abusive to his slaves and um, very strident in his defense of the slave system from any sort of federal inter interference. So the, the litigation over his will, which was brought by his heirs at law, his, his family, uh, which we'll probably talk about a bit. He, he had no wife or children, so these were half-siblings primarily and their descendants. The, the litigation over his will got lots of national attention. Um, and the departure of this large group of by then almost 400 freedmen for Western Ohio, where they were to settle about 30, 3,300 acres of land that had been purchased for them, also got a tremendous amount of attention. When the group was turned back by a mob of local farmers who prevented them from settling this land, um, the, the, the attention spiked yet again. Um, and that's, that's really where my book ends with an epilogue that takes uh, a step back and looks at what happened to the freedmen after they were forced to settle elsewhere, speaks a bit about their attempt to recover their land in the early, and speaks a bit about their attempt to recover their land in the early 20th century. Hmm. Why would Western Ohio pick that? Um, Ohio was a very common was a very common destination for freed people. Uh, coming from the South, particularly from Virginia, because it was just West of Virginia. I mean, in those days, of course, West Virginia was part of Virginia. So it was just across the river. Um, and it was particularly a, a, a desirable destination for large groups of emancipated <laughs> slaves, of which there were very few, actually, um, very few large groups, because land in Ohio in the 1830s and 40s was still affordable. Uh, some Virginia freedmen went to Pennsylvania, but land in Pennsylvania, which had been long settled, was too expensive really to make it um, possible to resettle a group as, as large as several hundred. John. I was just trying to figure out this Randolph <coughs> related to the, the other group of Randolphs that were closer to Jefferson, who's um, Mary Randolph wrote the first, supposedly the first American cookbook. They're not related, I guess, right? No, they're all related. Oh, they are. Okay. Uh, yes, there, there, there are scads of Randolphs in Virginia, and but they're all related. Oh, they are. Oh, um, okay. And actually, this guy's relationship to Jefferson was interesting. Not only were they second cousins, but Randolph's brother had married the sister of Jefferson's daughter's husband. So they were, they were in a Virginia sense, actually in the same family because they treated in-laws effectively as brothers and sisters. So Randolph was effectively a brother 
of Jefferson's daughter. What was there a reason that that did he decided to manumit these people, and did he uh, did, did 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 he plan for for their uh, economic uh, lives? It's it's hard to determine why he freed these people. Um, he and, and we can I'll come back to that in a minute. And and his greatest failure was that no, he made no provision for their futures apart from providing them land, um, which was not really an adequate provision because he had done nothing to prepare them for freedom. Uh, they they had no real basis for knowing how they were going to live on their own. Um, I think he very simple-mindedly thought that they could just recreate the same sort of agricultural community that they had created on a Virginia plantation um, and <clears throat> gave it no more thought than that. Randolph grew up in the post-revolutionary era where uh, many young people, and he and his brother were among them, uh, took seriously the ideals of the American Revolution. His uh, brother, as I mentioned before, freed all of his share of the family slaves when he died. Um, his stepfather was a very well-known, very important Virginia judge and law professor, St. George Tucker. And he was, he wrote the only really serious plan for general emancipation that was ever considered in Virginia until um, the Virginia legislature considered another plan in the, a plan in the 1830s. So, so Randolph grew up in a family where the idea of manumission or general emancipation was not um, as far-fetched as it would have been in many other families. However, throughout his political life, he fairly emphatically uh, reputed the, the notion that emancipation, general emancipation, would ever be a good idea, or that if it came in God's good time, which was the way he and most Southerners of his generation looked at it, um, the government should have, the federal government should have nothing to do with it. So uh, when the colonization movement came along in the early 19th century, uh, in 1819. And that was that was the movement sponsored by largely white slaveholders and some abolitionists to send emancipated American Blacks to Liberia. Uh, Randolph signed up for that, um, which put him in some sense at the vanguard of people who were thinking seriously about the possibility of emancipation, but also tagged him um, as one of those slaveholders who saw free Blacks as a problem and looked at colonization as a way to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. So his relationship with slavery and with uh, Black people in general was always problematic and changing throughout his life. And he never really explained to anyone. It never came out in 12 years of litigation yeah. 
why he had decided to emancipate his slaves. And his final will, by the way, did not emancipate his slaves, uh, which is one reason that the whole story became uh, so suspenseful and the litigation was so dramatic. Mm -hmm. Jeff? Yeah, well, uh, Randolph is clearly a very interesting personality, but I'm much more interested in this group of suddenly manumitted slaves. I don't remember, you must have said, I don't remember how many there were. They must have included men, women, and children, right? Yes, yes. How many? 383. Well, now, had they organized themselves? Did did, did they have a plan uh, when when they went went to Ohio? They must have been surprised by this themselves. I'm just wondering about the dynamics within that group. Yes. Well, of course, it's much more difficult to know what we would like to know about them simply because they were illiterate and therefore they didn't leave the kind of written records that historians Uh would like to be able to rely on. Fortunately, we do have the testimony of some of the survivors in the the litigation in the early 20th century. uh, And that provides some indication of, you know, what they were like, what they were thinking. Um, None of it completely answers the very obvious questions that you're asking, the very important questions that you're asking. As best we can figure out, um, they may have had some inkling that Randolph would free them, but by the time he died, they probably didn't believe it because in his last years, he was a mean man and he was very abusive toward them. Um, So in that sense, their liberation probably was a surprise to them. They were not able to make plans for their own departure from Virginia because they were really not capable of that. They had never been educated. They had no contacts really with anyone beyond their plantation community. Um, But they were required to leave by Virginia law, which said that all people emancipated after 1806 had to leave the state. So Randolph's executor, a Virginia judge named William Lee, was the one who ended up making the arrangements, purchasing the land in Ohio and um, arranging for their departure and their ultimate settlement. It was a huge undertaking because moving 400 people uh, to uh, and assembling 3,000 plus acres takes a lot of time. Um, they walked about half the way. They walked from Southside, Virginia, south of Richmond, to Charleston, what's now Charleston, West Virginia, where they boarded a steamboat that took them to Cincinnati. Then they got on canal boats that took them due north from Cincinnati to a, a canal port in Mercer County which is about midway in the western border of Ohio. Uh-huh. And that's that's where the land was that they were to settle. The trip took about a month. Uh, there were at that point, as I say, 383 of them. Uh, there had only been somewhat over 200, about 250, 290 when Randolph died. Well, um, and you they, said they, they tried were, to get back, right? After, uh, after well, the- after, the, after they were met by uh, a white mob that forced them to leave Mercer County, really at gunpoint, um, the, uh, 
the the best known member of the group, the one and the one about whom we know the most, because newspapers focused on him and wrote about him, a man named John Randolph, who had been, uh, sorry, John White, who had been John, one of John Randolph's principal manservants, and therefore became kind of a famous figure in his own right, uh -huh. um, decided to return to Virginia. Uh, and he uh, probably was uh, genuinely appalled and surprised by the, re the reception they had met in Ohio, um, because I think he, like uh, many of the others, had come to believe that in a free state, they would be treated like free people. Um, and so to find that they couldn't even go to the land that they owned uh, was uh, startling at, at, mm -hmm. at best. Um, he um, had a wife and several children. One of his sons remained in Ohio with a, a young woman to whom he married soon thereafter. But the rest of the family went back to Virginia. Virginia law said that any emancipated slaves who returned to the state would be whipped and sold back into slavery. And there, there was really no exception to that. Um, it would have taken an act of the legislature, the way the law was written, to create an exception. But White believed, and it turned out correctly, that his age, his fame, and his connection to John Randolph would see him through all that. And about five years later, he shows up in the records of his home county as a free man, along with the rest of his family, who had legal permission to remain. I have never been able to figure out how he got legal permission to remain, because as I say, it would have required an act of the legislature, and there never was one, uh, at least none that's of which any record survives. Mm -hmm. So my guess is that he, in a very informal way, was simply allowed by local authorities to stay there. And that was not uncommon, even though the law required um, manumitted enslaved people, new freedmen to leave. Local <laughs> officials in Virginia quite commonly allowed them to remain because they knew who they were. They didn't fear them. In many cases, they valued them and valued their contribution to the local economy. Hemp. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, th three quick things that I'm thinking that are related. Uh, one of them is the, uh, which was just coming out again, is that when we talk about recently freed people, enslaved people, we're talking about very uh, very different sets of people. We're talking about some people that were probably broken by slavery, and we're talking about other people that escaped, or 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 were sm small small craftsmen on, on plantations and stuff like that. So, I think we're talking about very different uh, the uh, possibility of a whole range of people in terms of creating their own lives. Uh, secondly. Uh, uh, I just wanted to mention uh, Judge Powell that that you were a uh, that you clerked for Greg, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he sent me to prison uh, when I sat for too long at the Pentagon in 1967, <laughs> and uh, uh, it, you can understand Powell in in different ways too. Uh, thirdly. 
Now, was uh, that when he was in the on the Supreme Court? Yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, 67, no, 67 no, was when I was soon. arrested, but 70 is when my case got up to the Supreme Court. I oh, think. interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, good way you can understand him. <laughs> third, third thing I wanted to mention is, is just that uh, I've been reading a, a wonderful book by uh, uh, about that that period by Annette Gordon Reed and and Peter Onuf, uh, uh, which is about Jefferson and the whole group of people around Jefferson and uh, Annette Gordon Reed is a uh, uh, amazing black historian. And, and, and her her whole perspective on on that whole time period is totally different than a lot of other people. She's she's she she's unimpressed with uh, uh, Jefferson. The subtitle of the book is "The Most Blessed of the Patriarchs," uh, but at, at the same time, she gives credit where credit is uh, due. And uh, Jefferson was was one of my heroes once upon a time, and since then, he he stopped being. Yeah. Well, Annette, of course, is a professor at at Harvard at the law school. Yeah. Although she yeah. has a she has a courtesy appointment in the, in the history department, and uh, she she and Peter were very helpful to me in working on this book. In fact, the book's dedicated to Peter. Oh, okay, great, George. So I may have missed this, but are any of the relatives of the slaves still alive? Yes, there are there are quite a few descendants in uh, western Ohio, still in the counties where they settled after they were turned out of Mercer County. I had met uh, a few of them. They are no longer um, a coherent group. In other words, a group that sort of self-identifies and meets together as they were at the time when they brought the litigation in the early 20th century. But many of them do know who they are. And um, many of them who know who they are know who the others are, even though they no longer remember who they are. <laughs> uh, but th the descendants are not just in those counties. Um, about five years ago, the Afro-American History and Culture Museum in Wilberforce, Ohio, which is also in Western Ohio, did an exhibit on the Randa Friedman. And uh, that attracted many of the descendants from elsewhere to come to the exhibit and, and sort of identify themselves. They came from as far away as Canada, California. You know, so like most groups of mid-19th century Americans, uh, they're, they're very dispersed. Okay, let's go to Ronnie, then we'll go to uh, Richard. Ron. Yeah, I just wondered in terms of understanding the trip back so they arrived in ohio with nothing it seems were immediately met by a mob and they were there and they arrived with no plan and no farming implements or anything like that i, I just wanted to get a little clearer yeah. picture of how they were met and how they yeah dispersed well, after that as 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 best we can figure it out from the surviving records um they they didn't come with nothing because they were going to have land and and that was incredible uh and for a a, a group of freedmen especially a group of freedmen this big to be given access to good land was almost unheard of 
the plan was that each family would get 80 acres, um, which was a lot. Um, and um, I'm sorry, 40 acres, there were 80 families uh, that were each to get 40 acres. 40 acres was uh, the average size of an Ohio farm at the time. It was about as big a chunk of land as a man and his family could work, given the ways that uh, farmers operated in those times. Um, it appears, although the, the evidence for this, unfortunately, isn't very good, that Judge Lee was making arrangements for houses to be constructed on each of these tracks and also for um, each group, each family group to receive farming implements and so on. Um, so they weren't coming with nothing. They were coming uh, with the expectation that they would have the means of supporting themselves just like other white and black settlers who came to Western Ohio at that time. And there was already a fairly large, well-established community of black settlers in the area to which they were they were headed. Um, in fact, it was it numbered somewhere around 300 uh, people, 350 people at that time. So um, that was going to provide a very, or appeared that it was going to provide a very supportive community for them and a way to help them uh, integrate into their new lives. So if they, if there were other breed blocks in the area, why were they singled out and met with a gun-toting yeah. mob? Right. Well, hard to know, uh, but easy to guess. Their arrival was going to double the black population in the county, more than double the black population in the county. They were arriving at a time when uh, tensions over race and slavery were reaching a, a new pitch on account of uh, the Mexican War and the discussion about slavery expansion that the Mexican War had sparked. They, they arrived in Ohio just a few months after the Mexican War began in 1846. Um, Democratic politicians had been particularly good at using uh, racial prejudice to stir up the white vote, not just in Ohio, but throughout the country. Um, and there was a great deal of racism throughout the North at the time that was reaching a much more marked pitch. It, it happened in 1846, that the Whig Party in Ohio had been agitating for the repeal of the Black Laws, which prevented um, anyone of African descent from settling in Ohio unless they posted a $500 bond that had to be secured by two Ohio landowners. Um, almost no one actually did that, and almost no local officials made any effort to support the law. In fact, Judge Lee had gotten advice from not only lawyers in Ohio, but from um, a Senator, Tom Corwin, who had been governor, congressman, one of the most important Whig politicians in Ohio, that he needn't worry about that when he sent this group out there to settle. But it provided um, 
a basis for, well, the, the, the Whigs in Ohio wanted to, to repeal those laws. That provided a, a basis for the Ohio Democrats uh, to use race as a way of raising support in the coming autumn of 1846 elections. So this very large group arrived at the time of heightened political tension and heightened uh, racial prejudice. Mm -hmm. uh, so when they reached uh, the Sorry. canal port in Mercer County, this this mob of, of several hundred armed farm white farmers was on the spot to meet them. And they, they literally surrounded them, um, may, uh, stood guard uh, around at their encampment overnight. And the next morning, uh, put them back on canal boats bound back to Cincinnati and accompanied the boats with muskets and bayonets until they crossed the county line. Wow. Richard. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to ask you first uh, about this pre-existing group of African-Americans who were living in that area. How long had they been there and how established were they? Did they vote, for example? Did they have voting yeah. rights? Uh, they, they did not have the right to vote. They had been there... Um, well, they had come not all as one group, but gradually over time. And they had been there about 10 years, um, 10 or 15 years. Um, they owned several thousand acres of land. They had going farms. They had established a village called uh, Carthagena. That's how they pronounced it. Um, that was providing the sort of um, craft and, and uh, community support that this group of about 300, 350 people needed. Um, and they had encountered some resistance from what we can tell, but nothing violent. And actually, I'm glad you brought me back to that subject because um, one of the most tragic things about uh, the arrival of the Randolph Friedman was that the racial tensions their arrival inflamed led to driving out much of the existing community. Oh. that had predated them. And oh. uh, th there, there, is, um, there is in the Ohio uh, archives uh, a series of petitions from the existing community and their supporters asking the governor to protect them, which he, he never really did. Uh, he, he went through the motions of warning the whites in the county uh, not to break the law but um, in the end, that community in Carthagena did not survive more than a few years after the arrival of the Randolph Friedman. There's a very good book that came out a few years ago um, by a, a, a historian whose last name is Cox, I've forgotten her first name, called Blood and Sinew of the Land, or Bone and Sinew of the Land, that is about the many rural communities of free blacks in Ohio and other Midwestern states at this time, and how prejudice and white violence ultimately drove out most of them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Kathy. Uh, I wanted to ask about the descendants back before that came up. I'm glad you were telling, talking about that. But um, I kept my hand up. Hampton, I'd like to know the name of the book by Annette Gordon-Reed that you were been reading? 
it's called uh, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs. It's a it's a biography of Thomas Jefferson, a sort of um, cultural biography. Thank I would I would characterize it of Thomas Jefferson. Uh huh. Thank you. You know, we we need think only of the different reception of the people trying to migrate into our country today, with different groups being received differently, such as the Haitians getting attacked by the Texas uh, military or police, whatever they were, and, you know, other various groups. Some are let in, some aren't, some meet, uh, some trickle in, some are in big groups. It's Yes, I think I think the analogy is completely apt, and and of course different different groups of whites were treated differently in mm -hmm. mid nineteenth century. There was enormous discrimination against Irishmen, and there yeah. was especially in the Midwest a great deal of discrimination against Catholics. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, that is relevant to this story. Uh, because many of the German immigrants in Mercer County were Catholic. And I think one reason they were so easily inflamed against uh, Black people in the area was that they themselves felt discriminated against. They didn't quite know where their place in American life uh -huh. was. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Good. Good. Jeffrey. Oh, yeah. Well, I, to follow up what you just said, I'm I'm very interested in in, in these uh, the white groups and their reaction. So, though uh, do, uh, among the uh, among the manumitted people, this John White seems to be a very interesting person. Uh, uh, he, he must have had certain qualities of leadership. But I'm wondering about the the uh, the reaction and uh, have you been able to identify? Uh, whether among the the German immigrants or others, the opposition, you know, were they organized, um, and did they have a, a political legacy after this? Well, they they were organized. They they organized for this purpose, um, and they they were mostly Democrats. Um, they were very typical of Ohio Democrats at that time. Uh, you know, very Jacksonian in their point of view. Um, there's a bit in the book about uh, some of their leaders, including uh -huh. the congressman from this area, a man named William Sawyer, who was um, uh, a, a working class, uh, a blacksmith from Dayton, Ohio, originally, who had moved further west into Mercer County in order to get himself elected to Congress, um, and uh, a man who used racism throughout his political career uh -huh. as, a, as a device for gaining popular support. Um, he, there's a wonderful satire of him in uh, the New York Tribune, which I talk about in the book, uh, because, of course, uh, the, the, the anti-slavery papers in the East uh, not only despised him, but found plenty of, of, of reasons or of, uh, ways to satirize him as, as a rube. Mm -hmm. nice. Well, listen, we've been going for about an hour and uh, 50 minutes, and uh, we want to thank you so much for coming on. Well, it's great to talk to all of you. And uh, 
I, I hope you'll I hope you'll look at the book because I think you'll enjoy it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Great. We will. We will. Thank, thank you. you so much for coming on. Bye bye, everybody. Gregory May. His new book is titled A Madman's Will, John Randolph, 400 Slaves, and the Mirage of Freedom. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.